Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with 20-game winner for the Royals and current Halos announcer Mark Gubiza. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we got a 20-game winner. A two-time All-Star, him and Pops were teammates in Kansas City. And most importantly, he gave me my first big league night out on the town. Kansas City Hall of Famer, Mark Gubiza. Gooby, welcome to the program. Hey, Booney, man. It's a pleasure to be on here with you, man. I miss you, pal. I appreciate it. Let's talk about that night. You remember? I came to Seattle. You and Saves <laughs> took me out and, and uh, kind of... <laughs> kind of broke the cherry. Yeah, I remember your 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 dad saying, "Hey, whatever you know, whatever you could do, this is saying it to you. Avoid hanging out with Saves and me, and uh, you have a better chance of getting a good night's sleep." So we decided to take you out of the town up in Seattle, outside of the Seattle area. And uh, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> you didn't listen to your dad. You listened to us. And, and uh, I remember uh, this is a struggle to get back to your room and and. and you know, stumbling over your your mom and dad's uh, luggage going in the room wasn't a good thing for you or for us, as a matter of fact. That's funny though, because I could I could see the whole scenario. You and Saves, the young bucks, and you got dad. You know, he's been playing for about fifty years at that point, and he's kind of the father figure in the room. He's like, "What if? What am I getting?" But you know, the peer pressure is like, "I got to be cool." Let the young guys take out my son, and you guys are just over there cracking up. I enjoyed it. It it kind of I, I just remember the next morning, you know, Dad gets me up like seven. And you know, you know, when you're in college, you don't wake up early. So Dad comes yeah. in and he goes, "You you want to play with the big boys? Get your ass up. We're going to breakfast with your aunt." And I'm just, uh, <laughs> it was kind of his way of saying, "Get your ass out of bed. This ain't gonna this ain't gonna fly. You're in college. You ain't a big leaguer, buddy." He's saying your lesson is learned now, so we're going to make sure you remember next time you have better decisions and better choices. <laughs> That's right. You got it. All right, so Gooby, uh, you're born in Philly. You went to high school in Philly. Uh, tell me about Mark Gubiza as a kid growing up. Uh, you know, three older brothers, Booney. Uh, my dad was a mailman. He actually played some minor league baseball for the White Sox back in, uh, I think it was like 50-51 that point it was a b c and d league i think it was d league down in kentucky he never really told us a whole lot about that but uh you know growing up in a row home in philly playing stickball uh kicking a milk carton around pretending we're playing hockey and playing football and basketball some sport every single minute of every day and uh because i had older brothers it allowed me to you know battle against people that were stronger better quicker and 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 a better athlete than me at that point so i think that actually made me a well-rounded athlete and be able to put me on the course where I ended up going by the end. But, uh, I, you know, it's, it was, it was a life that I, you know, I totally still look back on and, and enjoy, uh, living in a, you know, like a 1200 square foot home with one bathroom with six of us total in there. So it was, uh, it was, it was crazy, but it's something I didn't know any better. And, you know, I enjoyed every minute of it too. And, you know, just being around my friends every day, we go out to the schoolyard and, play some sport there was like 17 of us we were hanging out it's called the levering schoolyard boys we were and uh 
it was it allowed us to have fun every single day, no matter if it was raining, snowing, hot, cold. You know, Philly and how it was, humidity and everything else. It's not like being out in California now where, you know, 350 days a year, it's beautiful. The other 15 you may struggle every day was a struggle as far as weather, I felt, growing up. Isn't it amazing, too? Because uh, for those of you who listen to the Boone podcast, I, I grew up uh, just over the bridge in New Jersey. And, and as a kid, you know, and every, everybody, wherever you grow up, that's where that's what you love. You know, your buddies are there. But then you move to Southern California and you spend some time here. And then you go back. It's like, how did, how did I survive this? You know, the humidity in the summer, yeah. cold, in the, cold in the winter. But when you're a kid, you don't care. It's no, this is the way it is. Yeah, exactly. And then you, you learn to be able to survive. That, that, that was my big thing. I learned how to survive every day, whether, you know, making some money shoveling snow or cutting some grass during, you know, the spring or summertime. And, you know, that's what it was. I mean, you just hung out with your, with your boys all day long and, and your mom made your your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it was like, open the door, and you're gone. It's like all day long, you, you came back in time for dinner, went back out after dinner. So a little different lifetime uh, lifestyle back then, but uh, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade it in for anything because I loved hanging out with the, the guys every single day and just having a blast. So you move on, you go to William Penn. Uh, teammate of yours there is Ruben Amaro Jr., who, interesting, Ruben's a, he's a little bit older than me. But he was around. His dad was a first base coach for the Phillies during those during those Philly years for me as a kid. So Ruben was kind of the the older kid, you know, when you come to the yard, come to the ballpark with your dad, and you're ten or twelve. But Ruben was kind of the 15, 16 year old kid, so it wasn't cool to hang out with the little kids. But I do remember that time. He went on to be the general manager uh, for the Phillies. But tell me a little bit about your your time at William Penn. And I want to get into you. I want to get into the fact that how did you grow up in Philly? And I hear you were a diehard Oriole fan, Jim Palmer guy. I want to hear all about it. Yeah, well, let's, yeah. First of all, I'll give you a quick story about the, you know going to William Penn Charter. Uh, all my boys all went to Roxborough High School or at Central High School, public school back in Philly, and. I remember my dad and my mom pulled me aside. He goes, hey, we're going to send you to Penn Charter for high school. And I'm like, uh, I can't go there. That's way out of my element. I'm running away from home. And I kid you not. They go, okay. So my dad gives me a suitcase and says, hey, go pack your bag. And so I put all my clothes, you know, we caught our dungarees and our sneakers and, and some shorts, you know, threw them in my bag. I walked about a half a block away and I said, uh, yeah, I'm not going to make it. I walked back and said, all right, I'll go back to school. I'm going to go there because, you know, Penn Charter was in a whole different world <clears throat> world for me. I mean, you know, you have kids driving, you know, you know, their cars at 16 years old. I never even had my driver's license at that point. It's, you know, it was it was a little bit of adjustment for me, but as it turned out, it was the best decision my parents ever made for me because it forced me to not only concentrate on on athletics, but really to focus on schoolwork. Because I was literally doing two to three hours of homework every single night, and you know, that wasn't something I really focused on a whole lot growing going to grade school back home. But, uh, you know, being able to go there, that experience being around, you know, all the different kids that were going to be in that school it was a real small school. We had, I think 88 in my graduating class. So it was an all boys school at that point. Now it's, it's co-ed, but, uh, the campus itself is, you know, one of the most amazing things. It's like going to college. I mean, it goes, it looked like Princeton university really. And, uh, you know, you know, a bunch of great players from, 
you know, different sports from, you know, Matt Ryan ended up going there too, the quarterback from the Atlanta Falcons. And when, you know, they've had so many incredible doctors, lawyers and everything. So the experience there was incredible. You know, Ruben being, you know, he was a freshman when I was a senior, but we got to be really good friends. His brother, David was even, I thought was even better, a better player. He went to Duke university. He was strong and he could really hit the baseball, but you know, real funny story too is, you know, Ruben Amaro senior gives me and my dad, two tickets to the 1980 World Series game six. And I, you know, I never went to a game with my dad in my entire life. So it's the first game we ever go to. We're right behind a dugout where the ball literally pops out of your dad's glove and in the Pete Rose's glove, right by the dugout. And I was completely out of my mind that day. And it was like an out-of-body experience because my dad, you know, was a diehard Philly fan his entire life. They never won before. Here they are after a zillion years. They win a World Series, and we're actually at that game. It was something I'll, you know, I'll never forget. Where'd the Orioles come in? Uh, you know, you know what, Booney, back, you know, as you know, before your dad's team, you know, started winning ball games in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, they were really, really bad. Like every year, the Phils were like 60 and 100 or whatever. And they were, you know, I mean, I still, you still liked them. But, you know, I was trying to figure out, let me, what team could I go and cling on to? It wasn't going to be bad on the Phillies. So Baltimore and, you know, being so close to Philly area and, and Jim Palmer and was one of my all-time favorite human beings watch play and pitch. And, and, you know, and I got to know, I know him very well. We text each other all the time at that point. And then Brooks Robinson ends up being my uh, agent along with Ron Shapiro. So here I am, you know, being a Baltimore fan and one of my best friends in the game is Jim Palmer and then, my agent's Brooks Robinson, so they have that kind of connection and still have a love for the Orioles. was pretty cool. Yeah, Palmer, it's and and <laughs> Palmer's kind of famous for and and you you witnessed this and now and currently uh, as an analyst with the Angels, when you go to Baltimore, you can't avoid Jim Palmer as a player and in the position you're in. I mean, every time I'd go to Baltimore, I'm, I'm just waiting for Palmer to come down. Cause he's going to, he likes to talk and he will chew oh, your ear off and uh, every player, you know, what, what, what an yeah. unbelievable pitcher hall of famer, obviously. Uh, but every player gets that Jim Palmer treatment when you go as a visitor uh, to Baltimore to sit down because he wants to know everything and he wants to tell you how it was in his day. But it's actually some pretty interesting, pretty cool stuff. I love really delving into the past of our game and then getting caught up with with the current players. I, I think there's a there's a there's a lot of differences, but but at the end, there's a lot of similarities. So that's that's a pretty cool thing. All right, you yeah, get I mean, drafted. He's one of those guys, oh, I'm sorry. Booney. He's one of those guys, Booney, that uh, you know that can relate to his time and uh, and our time so well. That's why it's always a great conversation. And you're right. If you don't want to talk, you try to avoid Jim because if you're going to see him, you're going to have a good <laughs> conversation for about a half hour. So it's always fun. Yeah, exactly. Pull up a chair. All right, you're drafted in the second round by the Kansas City Royals, 1981. Uh, was college ever in the mix for you? Yeah, I, I, you know, I signed my letter of intent to go to Duke University as well. I was kind of following the footsteps of David Amaro down there. And uh, my first college visit, I went to Ohio State. And, you know, I was like, wow, this place is huge. And I'm thinking, you know what, I, I, I loved it. But I'm looking at a lot of the stuff, you know, delved into playing indoors. I'm thinking I'm already in a cold climate to begin with. So I'd love to be able to go to a warmer climate. And my second, you know, visit was uh, the University of Alabama. And here I am walking in 
you know, walk around the baseball campus and everything else. And the baseball coach said, Hey, I want to introduce you to somebody. I'm like, sure. That'd be great. Who he introduced me, Bear Bryant. I go into his office. He's got the hat on the desk. Bear Bryant goes, Hey son, you look big enough. You could play tight end for me. I'm like, go. And I look, I go, no, sir. I beg the difference. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they might swallow him up and eat me. I'd rather stick with baseball. He goes, all right, son, that's fine. But good luck in baseball. And, uh, I, I love their campus. And then my next one was the university of Georgia. I was down there when Herschel Walker was there. Buck Ballou was a football, you know, was a quarterback and a baseball player, Dominique Wilkins. And I was like, you know, I'm a sports fan. And you, you know how we are growing up back east. You're like every sport you love. So I'm like, I want to go to Georgia. I want to be hanging out with Herschel Walker and Buck Ballou and Dominique Wilkins. And the campus was incredible. And, you know, then, all, then, then finally I visited Duke University. And I'm looking at that campus. I'm like, oh, my God, that, that place is indescribable how great the campus is. I, I know they weren't on that level as those schools as far as baseball, but from academic purposes and, and, and get a chance to go to a school like Duke, I said, you know what, that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to go. And then, then, then next thing you know, I'm drafted by the Royals. And then you have that tough decision to make whether to go to college or, or, or sign out of high school. And yeah, and back then, you know, back in 1981, it, the draft wasn't like it is currently. So you actually did have a decision. Nowadays, you're a second round pick. There's really no decision because of the finances. Uh, it's such an advantage financially to sign then. But back then, a lot of just because you were a first, second round pick, that didn't necessarily mean it was 100% signed. So you did have a choice to make. You know, I look at a lot of players, uh, current young players, and, you know, you're out to high school watching your kids, and everybody thinks little Johnny's the greatest and he's the greatest. And as, you know, the life that we've led, you know, we see what it takes to be a real player. And, and I always, you know, I, I usually side on the, on the edge of caution with these parents. And I say, you know, minor league baseball is a different animal than your high school team. And, it, you know, this is it's the real world and it's a job and not everybody's cut out for it when they're 18 years old. Actually, very few are. I mean, you have to be physically, physically mature and kind of mature beyond your years mentally when you step into that first minor league season. Of course, we all think we're the greatest when we're 18 years old. I thought oh, I should be a first round pick. I want to go straight into it. College did me a lot of good going to USC for three years able to kind of be on my own a little bit yet, you know, they handle you with kit gloves at college. You go to a 60 game schedule versus right out of the shoot. You're playing 142 games as a minor leaguer. I think it takes a special type guy at 18. Obviously you had it because three years later you get to the big leagues, but uh, what, how was that first minor league experience for me coming out of high school, you know, big man on campus where you come from now, all of a sudden, you go to a professional organization. How was that for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Brad. Uh, I remember the whole thing, you know, that whole decision-making, you know, I, my parents were really cool about let me make my decision, which I was, you know, happy about and yet surprised. My mom wanted me to go to college. She wanted to, to you know, for me to be able to experience a college life and something she never did, nor did my dad, but it's something that, you know, that they would love to be able to travel down by car. They can drive down there to North Carolina and see me, my dad, you know, mentioned he played a little minor league baseball. He, he says, hey, it's all your decision. And just remember, you know, if it doesn't work out, then, then you can go back to college afterwards. But I'm thinking, well, dad, I won't be able to go to a college like Duke if I'm not going right away. So it took me a few minutes, you know, about a week 
John Sherholtz was our uh, farm director at that point. He ended up being, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame right now as a general manager. Came to my house and said, "Hey, listen, you know, what do you think?" And, and I'm like, "You know what, Mr. Sherholtz, I want to play baseball. I want, I want to, I want to roll the dice. It's something that, that's the only thing I've ever thought about in my entire life. I never wanted to be a fireman. I never wanted to be a policeman. I never wanted to be anything else but a baseball player." And, and you know, back east, you don't get to play a whole lot. You play like four months, five months a year, not like out in California where it's 12 months. So here I am. I, I sign, um, you know, excited. I get down there. You know, like within two days, I'm completely homesick. And I was like, boy, I hope I blow out my arms so I go home. I really, I, I just never have been away from my house. I mean, I'm, I'm with three older brothers, you know, my parents. I have 17 buddies I hang out with every day. And all of a sudden, I'm on my own. And the first pitch I threw in, in professional baseball, I think Daryl Boston, a line drive right off my wrist. I'm thinking, oh, I'm not that good anymore. <laughs> There's other people just as good as me. So it, it kind of humbled you right away. One of my favorite friends and teammates at that point, we were drafted the same year, was David Cohn. And so we were able to, and then all of a sudden he was in the same boat going out of high school. And this other pitcher named Tony Ferrer, we were known as the three musketeers. We were all drafted consecutively and we had this real good bond so all of a sudden i found my schoolyard buddies down there in, in sarasota florida at, at you know, their baseball academy so we were in dorms it wasn't like we were able, able even to go into you know apartments or anything like that we were in a dorm environment and uh, you know it wasn't the easiest thing in the world but then you know having those guys as my friends and connecting with them and competing with them you know the competition amongst us three and and, you know, the Royals at that point, and they still are to this day, were one of the top organizations in baseball. And, you know, I, after that transition of wanting to go home, homesick, then two weeks later, I'm like, you know what? I want to do this every day of my life. I don't know, care when I get back home because this is what I want to do. I want to compete. I want to get better. I want to work hard and do whatever it takes to, to get to that level where at that point, I'm just trying to go to high A ball. Then I'm trying to go to double A and I'm trying to go to triple A. And, and I turned out to be the luckiest could be. I just went to A ball, double A, and I skipped triple A, made it right to the big leagues, way ahead of the schedule that me and my dad kind of put together as far as give it a four-year plan. I made it up to the big leagues in three years out of high school. That's really doesn't happen too often, especially for, you know, you know, a kid that hadn't played a lot of professional, I mean, baseball period. I played three, four months a year. And here I am, you know, in the big leagues at a 21-year-old on a team that, is used to winning in, in Kansas City. So that was a lot of fun and it was a challenge, but it was something that, uh, you know, that I look back on and think, you know, if I, if I gave up, which I almost wanted to do first week or so, then I, I don't know where my career path would have been. Yeah, and you make your debut in 84, you're 21 years old. And today, the, the day of the Mike Trouts and the Bryce Harpers and uh, Acuna and Tatis, you know, you see these kids get into the big leagues at 20, 21 years old. And, and you know, nowadays it seems like they're pushing them a little bit more, get them there a little bit quicker. But back in that day, it was pretty rare for a 21-year-old to be in the big leagues going every, you know, taking the ball every fifth day. So you were kind of uh, – uh, I wouldn't call it maybe a, an aberration. I, I, I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't happen that much. I think we get a little bit carried away with, Oh yeah. Acuna does it. Well, Acuna is a once in a lifetime uh, talent, you know, Mike Trout getting in the big leagues in his teenage years. 
People, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., those are ridiculous situations. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Most most of us get to the big leagues 22, 23, 24 years old. That's more normal. But you're pitching the big leagues at 21. You go 10 and 14 your first year. And then you get to 1985. Uh, and, and that was a special year, not only for you, but the Kansas City Royals. Uh, you win the World Series. You got your boy saves, your running mate. You go 14 and 10. Uh, just tell me a little bit about that 85 year and, and that uh, Kansas City Royals team. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, Booney, that was one of the, you know, one of the best teams i ever been involved with. Uh, was it the most talented team? No. Was it probably the most talented? If you look at that, uh, teams that won a World Series, if you look at the players on there, you go, wow, they won a World Series with that team. But all 25 guys knew exactly what they wanted to do. That was from the get go in spring in 84. You know, my first year, we get swept by the Tigers in, in the playoffs. And that team, by the way, was insanely good. The 84 Detroit Tiger team. So, you know, going into spring training, we're thinking, okay, we've got to be favorites in the AL West. We were picked to be fifth in our division. We're like, wow. So that, that was the motivation we had. We had some really good veterans on the team. George, Brett, Hal McRae, Frank White, Willie Wilson. Uh, so we knew we, we, we had the right core. It was just a matter of the pitching. And, and we all gained a year experience. Danny Jackson, myself. You know, saves you mentioned, Bud Black and Charlie Liebrand. So we knew every fifth day we were taking the ball. We went with a nine-man staff this year. Now you see teams with 13-man, 14-man staffs. We went with a nine-man staff the entire year because us five-man rotation, we took the ball every day. And then, uh, you know, we go off to our usual slow start like we always did in Kansas City. Uh, we're seven and a half games back, as I remember, out of the All-Star break. I think we had a five-game series with the Yankees because we had a couple rainouts and we got swept all five and we're like, Oh man, we're in trouble. And, uh, you know, but George Brett and Hal McCray said, never worry. We always lock it in in August, September. And if we're close with the angels, we're going to get them. And we had, an, we had eight games with the angels to play with them in, in mid September. And we won seven of eight. And, uh, we only ended up winning division by one game. So if we lose another game there, we're tied. We lose two. We, we don't win the division. And then that Angel team, as you remember from your dad there, I mean, they had name after name in that lineup. It's like every time you look at them, you're thinking, I got every one of their Slurpee cups and, and baseball cards. And I'm thinking, I, I want to be those guys. And here you are facing them in eight games in, in September. We got incredibly hot. We pitched real well. And we ended up winning that division by one game before we take on the Toronto Blue Jays. And we had uh... – saves on the program about a month ago and he talked about that year that obviously that was a real special year for brett um and i asked him and i'm gonna ask you give me game six the don dinkinger call at first base which ends up pushing you guys you end up winning that game and pushing it to a game seven and then the rest is history you win game seven walking andahar walks off the mound he gets ejected because he's still pissed about the night before dinkager's now behind yeah. the plate how do you remember that yeah i mean so here i am i'm down in the bullpen there so i didn't have a great view of it but you know the, the thing i i even always see is you know ty Worrell is like not only goes to the bag and he go, and every time as a pitcher because i did it many times myself you go step back again. I, I thought for initially he just missed the bag. I didn't think the call was that he thought George Orr to beat him down the line. But, you know, Vince Coleman ended up being my teammate about a couple years later. Obviously, he was on that Cardinal team. And I always say there was only one out when we scored the winning run. And the way that team was, even if, even if he's out at first base, okay, that 
there was going to be somebody come through that next to bat with two outs. It's just the way we were. I mean, we come back from three to one against Toronto and win the last two games up there in Toronto. I mean, that team was as talented as any team I've ever seen. Their outfield with Barfield, Mosby, and Bell. I mean, what better outfield there was there at that time? I mean, they were a really good team. So we came back against them, fall behind 2-0 to Cardinals to come back against them as well. There was something crazy about it. I go back to we're down, we're, we're seven and a half games out of first place in 85, and we win the division. There was something about that team that we weren't going to be denied whether that call was made or not, there were still one more out that we always felt, and we always talked about as a team that there was, we were going to find a way to win. Yeah, you know, we, we had George Brett, we jumped on his back, but everybody else had played their part, whether it was, you know, Daryl Motley hitting a home run in game seven after he hit a home run foul to start that game, Pat Sheridan, you know, Buddy Biancolano, who didn't hit a whole lot during that year, but during the postseason he did. And, and you know, George was George. He was ridiculous. And, you know, we didn't do some of those games. We didn't have our DH, so we lose Hal McRae and his presence in there. Uh, Frank White was hit number four in our lineup that year. Balboni with his power. I mean, Frank White normally in, in a lineup would be hitting seven or eight. He's hitting fourth for us, but he came through in clutch moments. I mean, there was something about a team that, that it's on a roll that, you, you know, you, all, you hate to say that word, a team of destiny, because it's kind of overblown. But uh, we were in our in our, our minds, we were destined to win that year, no matter who we were playing. And, and we felt we were the better team, not the most talented team, but we were a better team than anybody in baseball that year. Yeah, that's interesting. You say it. Uh, we weren't the best team, but we just kind of knew and, and we were going to win. And and I've been on a couple teams like that. I never got a chance to win a World Series, but I've been on a couple teams where I can relate exactly what you're talking about. It's not a a verbal thing. It's not to where we got to tell each other and tell everybody how good we are. It's just kind of a look. And it, you can look at a teammate and they can kind of nod back at you like, yeah, we got this. And it seems more time than not, you do have that. That that one Mariner team I was on, it was just a – it was just kind of a known thing. It was an aura that, that was around that team. Like we're going to win every single night and we're, we're down three in the eighth. We're coming back. And, and to me, what you just described is kind of that thing that doesn't come along too often. You're lucky to, to witness it once or twice, but, but that 85 team obviously had that and, and you end up winning the world series. Uh, 88 and 89, your all-star years. Uh, you're a 20 game winner, and in that '89 season, I, the Boone podcast has got to hear about what's it like being that battery mate with Bob Boone. I, I know what it's like being being his son, and and a pain in the ass he can be to me at times. What's it like being a battery <laughs> mate with Dad? You know, it was, it was great. You know, first of all, I'm, here I am. I'm a fanboy. I'm like, oh my god, Bob Boone. Uh, he's he's my teammate. I'm calling my buddies. I'm calling my my family. They're like. No way! How, what's he like? I'm like, I, I can't, I can't even talk to him right now. I'm just like, I just want to ask for his autograph. And here he is, going to be calling pitches for me behind the plate. And, and, and it's funny. This, I think it was just two nights ago. I'm doing a broadcast, and the question was, who is your favorite guy to throw to behind the plate? And I said, without a doubt, Bob Boone. And then Brett Maine was another catcher that kind of emulated the way your dad you know, caught the game. He, he came up to me and he said the best advice ever. He goes, your, your fastball moves so much. If I set up on the corner, you're never going to get a call. It might be a strike, but it's going to look like a ball because it's going to run 
by the plate. If it goes to the front of the plate in the strike zone, yeah, it's a strike technically, but it's going to move off the plate, so it's always going to look like a ball. You can look back at the tapes if you're an umpire and say, hey, that's why I caught it a ball. Look where it's caught. So he told me he was going to stay right down the middle of the plate. And I'm looking at him, right down the middle of the plate. He goes, trust me, your, your baseball will never stay straight. And if it does, hey, it, it deserves to be hit. And I'm like, all right, so you kind of take that in for a second. And I'm realizing here's a guy that's caught about a billion games already. He's already I've already faced him you know, when he was with the Angels. Uh, when I'm on the mound and he's at the plate, there's something, okay, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why do I always walk everybody, you know? Because I'm thinking these pitches look like strikes. He goes, so he just sat right in the middle of the plate, just moved, just slightly moved his body one way or the other way, kept his glove there, and he framed so many would-be balls that end up being strikes that, that it was uh, all of a sudden I went from a guy walking 120 guys in a season to now all of a sudden – I'm at the tops as far as least amount of walks per nine innings pitch. It was, it was an incredible transformation all because he just gave me that, that great piece of advice. And it, you know, he knew exactly how to set up hitters. And I remember him telling me, you know, cause Ricky Henderson, I had some success pitching against him, but if he was on first base, I was, I was fried. Cause here I am, you know, he's going to steal second and third. He goes, Hey, all you got to do is trust me is hold the ball. I'm like, really? That's it. And he goes, no, he won't go. He won't try to steal against me if you hold the ball and I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. Then lo and behold, stop the running game. So he was, it was almost like he was like an encyclopedia and a great catcher during the course of my career when we were together as a pitcher catcher. And then he ends up being my manager, which was even cooler for me. But uh, without him, I don't know if I ever get to that, that level where I was, you know, going towards before some injuries derailed my career. But I owe him so much. And, and when, you know that to this day, even when we see each other, like we're best of buddies and, you know, and I'm still fanboy, by the way, with your dad. It's still, it's still crazy when I see it because he's a Philly. And I always remember as being a Philly and, and being a World Series champion in 1980 as a Philly and then being his teammate is beyond the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I think that's cool for the fans out there listening that 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 relationship that a pitch only a pitcher and a catcher have. You know, we have relationships as middle infielders with the second baseman and the shortstop, and there's an understanding and a knowing where each other we can almost kind of feel if you play with a guy for a while, you can kind of feel where he's going to be. You 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 gain a trust amongst one another, and it makes a big difference to be in a great double play combination or an average double play combination. But the pitcher catcher relationship, and when fans ask me the question today, how much how important is that? I said it's really important. It, it, when that pitcher takes the mound and, and has complete trust in who his backstop is, and and you know it, even down to the point where you might come out you might come out of a game and go i didn't shake one time tonight that means you're on the same wavelength and i think that's so important as far as working at 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 your comfort level at your speed but uh it's fascinating to me because i never paid much attention to it as a player you know i was more more caught up in the nuances of of hitting and and my pregame routine i never really paid attention but as i get a little bit older and i watch the game i i've I've realized how important that pitcher catcher. I had Dan Wilson in in uh, Seattle, and and he hit eighth in our lineup and was a was a good offensive player. But we didn't really mind. But but now looking back, how important he was to that staff, and, and just they were all on the same page. They all f- loved throwing to him. Uh, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I could talk all day about it. But we don't have that much time, but I, but you bring up some really good points. And in those years. Gooby, you're a freaking horse, man. 
you're going 270 innings, 255 innings. Uh, that's logging a lot of innings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it started really, you know, it, it, it a funny story. My first year in the big leagues and, you know, here I am, you know, we win the game, I think six to three and, and Lee May was our first base coach and Hal McRae, our designated hitter. And he comes up to me after the game, I went six innings. So, which would be a quality start right now, but in their mind, that was not a quality start. So they walk up to me, hey, they call me Cabana Boy from the Flamingo Kicks. They look like Matt Dillon, they always call me. So they say, hey, Cabana Boy, how do you feel about your game? I'm like, uh, and I, I'm thinking, what do I say here? I said, good. <laughs> they go, you're an embarrassment. And they just tore me apart because I only went six innings. You wait five days to go six innings and you're feeling good about yourself? And I'm like, uh, no, I'm just going to sit there and absorb all this and, and, and learn from it. So they go, hey, the next time out there, if you don't go eight innings, seven, eight innings, or nine innings, don't even come into this clubhouse. And boom. And they said other few choice words in it, some F-bombs and this and that. So I'm like, wow. I'm thinking, all right. As soon as they walk away, that's it. That's all. They made their point walked away. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, here's my choice. When, when Dick Hauser comes to the mound, do I fight him <laughs> or do I fight Lee, Lee May and, and Hal McCray? I said, I'll take my chances with, with uh, Dick Hauser, although he was a tough dude. I'm thinking, you know what, that, that point on, I'm never coming out of a game without a fight. So uh, that's why, you know, I felt like I didn't do my job if I wasn't shaking the catcher's hand after the game. My job that fifth day, because you guys are all playing every day and you guys are, you know, sweating and, you know, facing great pitching, dealing with heat, bad weather, and travel. You're playing every day. I'm going every five days. Why can't I complete the game in my mind at that point? So I, I felt like I, it was a disservice to my teammates if I wasn't completing the game. And that's why, you know, if I didn't go that route and wasn't going 230, 240, 250, even beyond that inning-wise, that I, I was letting down my teammates. So I think that helped me along the line because I never wanted to come out of a game. And your dad knows this. I'm sure, I'm sure he shared a few stories where that, I, when he'd come out to take me out, I, I, even though I respected him, I didn't want to come out of a game. I just never wanted to come out of a game because I thought his best option in that game was me being still out there. And that's my, my mentality. Although, you know, the game has changed now, and it's not necessarily the pitcher's fault right now. It's just the way it is where, you know, they're all being told just throw as hard as you can for two, three times through the lineup, and you're out of the game. we got a guy in the bullpen that – throws even harder than you. So I understand where they're at, but my mindset was I wasn't coming out of the game without a fight every day. And I, and I think looking back, I'm, I was proud that that's the way my mentality was. It was all set in line by Lee May and Hal McRae telling me what I needed to do. Well, I think you summed it up earlier. You talked about that 85 rotation and you only had nine, nine pitchers. I mean, today's game, that's unheard of. They're taking 13, 14 pitchers. You're right. The game is different today. But I still think, you know, and, and when I'm asked about the question, I said, you know, there's still the, the, the top tier guys out there. There's still the horses out there. And, and the game today maybe doesn't necessarily allow for you to take the ball and pitch nine inning shutouts time after time. But the mentality is there. And I think you touched on that. Every time you took the ball, you plan on going nine. And then however the game dictates, and once again, today's game, you got 13 pitchers. You got a lot of guys out there that got your back, and, and it's turned into such a specialty role. But I still think the great ones, even today, 2021, when they take the ball every fifth day, 
they're planning on going seven, eight, nine innings. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's Beavers, the Garrett Coles, yes, definitely. Yeah. All right, 80 Royals, real quick. Uh, I want to rapid fire. Just give me a few few thoughts on each. I'm going to give you three players. We're going to go with George Brett. Best hitter ever. Best hitter, pure hitter, and, you know, three batting titles of three different decades. Uh, ridiculous. Brett Saberhagen. Uh, best command of a fastball that I've ever seen in a hard, firm fastball. Fantastic athlete on the mound as well. Bo Jackson. Freak. <laughs> Just a freak. I mean, the, the most perfect human being that God ever put on the earth, in my opinion. Perfect human being on the earth. Yeah, I got to – I was coming up when after he had that hip injury in football. He went down to double A and uh, was rehabbing that. And I got a chance I, – I got to meet Bo when I was on that trip with you guys. <laughs> I opened the podcast up with that story. I got to meet Bo then, but I got to play against him. And uh, in Birmingham, I'll never forget it. He got on first base, and he kind of looked at, looked at me and said, Booney, I'm coming in hard. And, you know, he was saying it with a smile. Uh, just just remembering, you know, a few years earlier, just meeting him in the clubhouse. But uh, you're right. It, he was unbelievable. It's I can't explain it to people what it's like. But if I could if I could imagine what it's like being in the backfield when he's coming, that's how I felt when he was coming in to break up a double play. And, and I yeah, can real, real quick there, too. I mean, like everyone asked me who, who Trout reminds me of. I always say he's a combination of George Brett and Bo Jackson because the, the wow, crazy athletic stuff of Bo, yet the baseball player of George Brett, you put them together, and that's why I always say Mike Trout is. Yeah, unbelievable. All right, 96. Um, now, you've been, you've been with the Royals, I mean, since you're a baby, so from the draft in 81 up, in, up through 95. Uh, you leave you leave Kansas City in a trade for Chili Davis. You go to the Angels, which is going to be your final season. Um, how was that for you? I mean, you're in one organization your entire life. Very rare, especially today. It just doesn't happen. Um, but, but you've been there, and, and that's all you've known is that Kansas City Royals organization. All of a sudden, you're leaving. What's going through your mind at that point? Yeah, that that was Boney. That was a real tough decision because at that point I was a ten five guy. And, you know that ten you know ten years in the big leagues, five consecutive with the same club. That so you, I, I so you can yeah do it, to, yeah to explain to the people you had the right to decline that trade if you wanted to. Yes, exactly. And uh, you know, just go back two months before that because our general manager Herc Robinson calls me before I'm pitching up in, in Minnesota and say, would I approve a trade to the Texas Rangers? And I'm like, you know, I'm pitching tonight, Herc. I'll let you know after the game, blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, Paul Molitor hits a line drive and breaks my leg. So obviously that trade's off the table. And, you know, but it, but it hurt in, in my mind that they even asked me to, you know, if I'd be willing to be traded. You know, just because I felt so loyal, I had a couple of opportunities to leave as a free agent. In my mind, I was never going to leave unless they – Basically, in my mind, they didn't want me anymore. So, and then when the came back again and said after my leg was healed up, I got my cast off my leg, and and he said, "Would you approve the trade to the Angels?" I'm like, if there was one place that I wanted to play besides Kansas City, outside obviously outside of Philly, would have been the Angels. You know, it was close to home. 
my oldest daughter was going into kindergarten at that point. I know how difficult it is. You, you live that lifestyle where you're in school and, you're, and your dad's away playing in a different city. So I, I think, okay, this is perfect scenario. I, I don't know how this happened, but it's the perfect scenario for me that I, I immediately told Herc Robinson, our general manager, I approved the trade. And it was done before the playoffs that year. They couldn't, obviously, you can't announce anything until after the World Series. So I'm trying to contain myself and not tell everybody this is happening. I was, it would hurt that I was leaving Kansas City because that was my family and that was my home for years and years, like you mentioned. But to go to the Angels, and even though it didn't work out on the mound for me, uh, I always believe there's a, there's a reason and a purpose for any, everything in your life. If I don't get traded to the Angels and approve that trade, I'm not doing what I'm doing right now. And that's why there's a, there's a purpose that God gives you every everything in life. And it wasn't easy dealing with a broken leg and then eventually completely tearing my rotator cuff for the Angels where I was trying to prove myself and I didn't do the job in my mind. And it, and it still hurts that I didn't perform at that highest level, you know, for the angels, because I felt I had it in me still. And I was still only 34, 35 years old that I felt I had another three, four years. Cause I always kept myself in shape and I knew I was going to be able to perform. I didn't do that, but, but here I am now doing something 15 years later yeah. for an organization that took a chance on me. And I took the chance to go to them. Yeah. I ended up going to Anaheim and, and opens another four uh, door for you in your second career in 05 and 06. Uh, you're the head coach uh, at Chaminade, I think, high school, in West Hills. Chaminade High School, and you, yes, yes. You got, you got to coach your son, Chad. How was that? I, I did a little coaching of nope. my kids, but but what was that like? That was really great. I mean, when I first took the job there, my son wasn't even in, in school at that point, so everyone said, why are you taking this? You know, you, you don't you have other things you want to do? I said, no, this, there's something cool about being the head coach. Here I am as a third base Coach, you know, I'm sending home runners. I'm putting down signs. I'm controlling the whole game. As a pitcher, sometimes you know this, Booney. You know, position players look at pitchers as if we're like a parasite. We're just there just to throw. We're not around as far as the, the whole aspects of the game. So here I am, like a chance to control the whole game. And I had a blast. I was I coached against players like you know Trevor Plouffe was on you know a high school team there, Crespi High School. I coached against so many different guys over the years. That, you know, Garrett Cole was at Orange Luther when I was coaching there at Chaminade going through that. So it was fun competing again in a different type of competition where I'm trying to get the most out of my kids every day. And, and it, the cool thing about it, even 10 years later, you know, when a lot of those kids had already graduated and they have kids and everything, they still call me coach and, and want to have conversations about this life. And to be able to guide a few kids in the right direction as far as this life things. I mean, because you know how many kids you know play high school baseball. How many get even get a chance to play collegiate baseball, let alone professional? The, the, the numbers are, are minuscule. But to put them in the right direction of being, you know, team first concept, you know, allows you, in my mind, to be successful in life. So I, I love that, and then eventually be able to coach your son. I'll tell you what, man, and I'm sure your dad went through this with you and Aaron and Matt. That's the hardest thing ever is watching your, your kids play. Because you can't control the stuff. When you're on the mound or on the, in the field, you can control what happens. But as a parent or as a coach, you can just put them in position to succeed. They have to do it. And sometimes you're biting your lip thinking, oh, what are you doing? And this and that. But you, but you know they have to make their own decisions. And it's so hard. It is so hard. And you know that with your kids now. It's so hard to just sit there and not, you know, and just 
not feel like you can control anything because you don't. It's their, it's their life, their decisions, what they're doing. But it's so hard just to sit back because you're so used to controlling your own destiny. 06, big year for you. Uh, you're inducted in the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame. Um, kind of all came to fruition for you. You know, you, like you said, every year you played with Kansas City Royals. Now comes your time. Um, how'd you feel when you got that call? Yeah, that was, that was pretty awesome, Booney. Uh, you know, and everyone was saying, what, what are you writing down for speech and everything else? And I, I, I'm always better just going off the cuff. And, and it was crazy how it was almost as if it was a script written by like a Hollywood movie or something. Cause here I am, you know, they knew I was a rock and roll guy. Um, you know, I'm dry. They drive me in on a Viper and they're playing sweet emotion from Aerosmith. And I'm like, this is so awesome. So I, I tell basically, you know, off, you know, just from my heart, how it felt from the first day when I drove in on the bus, you know, it was a misty rainy night on the I-70 and you see the back of the Kansas City Royal Stadium, that crown there with KC. And, you know, I'm like, oh, this doesn't even look like it's, it's a real thing. This is like a movie. So I'm driving in there, you know, I come to the clubhouse, you know, I, I call my mom and dad. At that point, I still had no idea I made the team. You know, then they didn't tell you you made the team. They told you when you didn't make the team. So now they're telling you a week or two in advance if you made the team. I didn't even know. Me and Safe snuck on the bus, hit our luggage and everything else, trying to think that maybe they won't notice this. So I'm in the clubhouse, and I, and I you know, get on the payphone. I call my, my mom and dad, and they're just going nuts. So and then they asked the, the, the question that every parent would always ask, well, where are you staying? I'm like, oh, that's a good question. I don't even know. So then George says, hey, Saves, and, and you are staying with me. So I live with George my, my first you know, couple weeks of the season. But I'm telling a story on, you know, that day when they put me in the Royals Hall of Fame. And, and my dad, just, I remember vividly, he says, whatever you do, son, you know, this is, and I said, Dad, this is incredible. He goes, this, you know, this dream of yours is never wake up. And then, boom, as soon as I said that, they played Dream On the song at the stadium it's like like and i never even told him i was ever going to say this is a dream don't and my dad says never wake up and then lo and behold i get an autograph you know guitar from everybody in aerosmith i'm like there's no way this this thing I almost as if anybody was there was probably thinking wow you guys are pretty good at writing the script but it was absolutely everything was off the cuff i had no idea what the royals were planning and i had you know i really had no idea what i was even going to say and it all just came in to right at the right moment. My, my family's there. My brothers were there. My parents had already been gone at that point. But, you know, the teammates that were around at that point, Mrs. Hauser was there because Dick Hauser, you know, was really inspirational in my success I had there in, in case of Dan Quisenberry's wife was there because Quiz had passed away. And there were so many people there that it was a moment that I'll, I'll never forget. And then get to throw the first pitch out, and my son is behind home plate, and he caught it. It was like, wow, this is so cool. Wow, that is that is pretty awesome. Um, so currently, you're color color analyst for the Angels. I listen to you all the time. You know, I, I text you once in a while. We're we're we talk on on social media a little bit, but I, I listen to you all the time. I love listening to to Gooby. Um, but there's a couple guys on that Angel team that we're watching right now. The obvious one, Mike Trout. You touched on a little bit earlier. You know, one of the the player of our generation. I think if you went around and took a poll of the current players, overwhelmingly they're going to pick Trout as as the current kind of you know that 
that unofficial best player in the game. You get to watch him every day. Uh, you're, you're watching history now with, with a couple guys. And I'll start with Albert, who we had on the, on the podcast a couple months back. I'll tell you, he seems like he's hitting Jack still. Hey, who knows? What is he, 58 years old? But he's got a little <laughs> bit left. In, I mean, I talked to Albert and I was going, Albert, you're chasing like Babe Ruth and, and Hank Aaron's RBI records. I mean, the fact that you have a two in front of your your all-time RBIs, two thousand I can't even fathom that. I got over a thousand. I thought it was pretty good. He's got two thousand plus. He's closing in on on home run records. Uh how's that been watching him a little bit? And then I want to get to the guy that's the most intriguing, one of the most intriguing things I've seen in the game in Otani. But touch on 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 Seeing Trout and Pujols on a daily basis. I know Pujols is at the end, but but still still hitting homers. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, this touch with Trout, I think you would probably you know feel the same way when you know Ken Griffey Jr. was one of those type of players that you know did everything exceptionally well, had a huge smile on their face, you know, did things that you're just absolutely amazed at, and and I even think Trout goes even just a little bit beyond that because his power is insane. And they both, you know, could run and defend and everything like that. But there's something about Trout and his patience at the plate. And every time I look at him play, and we're really good friends. We went, went, we've been to Eagle games together back home in Philly and all that jazz. But I, I sit back and just look at him and go, now I understand why there's a comparison with him and Mickey Mantle. They have a similar facial structure and, you know, the speed, the power combination, all that together. It makes it just a joy to watch him every day, but he's, he's still such like Ken Griffey Jr. is he's like a, a kid, he's a child. This just happens to be unbelievably good. And then, but with Albert though, I, I watch him every day. I mean, he works like no one I've ever seen. Uh, every day he's in the early hitting. You know, he's hitting outside doing regular batting practice where some guys hit in the cages. You know, he's he's always talking with Trout. He's talking with other guys. He's talking with other hitting coach Jeremy Reed and and, and Paul Sorrento. He's trying to get better every day, and he's 41 years old. And I look at, you know, when you look at his numbers, you can make an argument. He's top three, top five all-time player. All-time player. He's won gold gloves. He's won MVPs. He's won World Series. You mentioned the RBI. He's got 21-12, I think, right now. Uh, 667 career home runs, 669 doubles. He's the only one in history in the top five in home runs and doubles. Extra base hits. You know, he's got you know, 32, 53. He's just two hits away from Eddie Murray's all-time hit mark. He's going to probably, at the end of the season, be in the top 10 as far as hits. And Albert's not going to get any infield hits. Maybe early in his career he's not, but and he, he just smells an RBI. Like, nobody I've ever seen that you – know, although I know people devalue RBIs now in the game, but you don't win unless you score runs. And there's a, there's a special know. breed. That, you know this. You have a 1,000 RBIs. You know – how to get a guy home. Some guys don't. Some guys press. And I know those guys when I'm on the mound, I can get them out. But guys that smell RBIs, I know they're going to get them home against me. And Albert's one of those guys. And if you ask Mike Trout, the reason why Mike Trout is the player that he is, partly because of Albert Pujols being around him and him and Torrey Hunter having those two two guys around Trout, he made him better. But Albert is one of the greatest human beings too ever. He's not one of those guys when he does like special things off the field, he lets everybody know. He just does them. And he does it quietly. He doesn't want people to say, wow, you did this for that person. You did this for, you know, back home in the Dominican Republic. You did this for Down syndrome. All these things he does special things for, he doesn't do it so everyone would say, wow, you're great. 
We just happen to know because this in a random conversation, he would, he would just start talking about it. And then, you know, he did it. Cause that's what, I mean, he's an unbelievable player. Don't get me wrong, Booney, but I think he's a better human being than he is a player. And that's, that's saying a lot. And I was around when he first broke in the league in 2001. And believe me, everybody back then, they knew exactly how good this was. This guy was going to be. And if you look back to Albert's first 10 years in the big leagues, the young, young fans out there today didn't get to see Albert in his first 10 years. But there's an argument to be made. It's the greatest first 10 years in the history of baseball on the offensive side. Uh, for you listening to the Boone Podcast, Google Albert Pujols' first 10 years and just see how ridiculous they were. And he's still going strong. It still boggles my mind. And I don't care what they say today about, the like you mentioned, the devaluation of the RBI. And they do it a little bit with average, too. But I'll tell you what, with the game on the line and, the, and a nasty pitcher on the mound, I need somebody to get a hit. I'm going to take Tony Gwynn up there to get a hit. I'm not looking for a walk in that situation. It's the same thing with the RBIs. The guys that drive in the runs usually then Google what their salary is. It's usually pretty high. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's never going to go away. And they can they can put emphasis on whatever they want to do. But come crunch time, you want the guy that knocks them in. And crunch time, you want the guy that can get a hit. Not get on base. You need a guy who can get a hit off a off a tough closer and give him a tough at bat. Albert was uh, all of that. The, all right, getting into the most intriguing thing, and then I'll let you go. You're watching this on an everyday basis. I'm trying to get my head around it. This Otani guy. I'm sitting there going, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. You know, we the, the legend of Babe Ruth and all that stuff. I'm just thinking as a manager – and maybe you have a different perspective in the, you know, in the booth watching this every day on what you would do. But I'm, when I'm asked about what would you do, I'm thinking, this guy's throwing 100 miles an hour. And he's hitting balls as far as anyone in the game right now. He's, a, he's a, just an offensive juggernaut. Like I said, throwing 100, 102 off the bump. How do you get the most out of this guy's two-way capability – We've never seen it before. There's no data on what we should do. I'm just thinking, I've got to find a way as a manager to really tap into both sides. Do I pitch him every fifth day? Uh, do we pitch him every eighth day? Do, do we put him in the bullpen and limit him to a certain amount of innings? Because we don't want to lose that offense. Do we play him four days a week offensively? Uh, I just don't know what the correct answer is because the bottom line is keeping him on the field. And that's been kind of his his the trouble he's had thus far in his career is I couldn't imagine juggling pitching and because you know the regimen you as a as a mm-hmm. starting pitcher have to go through after you take your start it the work starts now until your next start well as an offensive player you know hitting to me was was the toughest thing in the world I've got to be on top of my game every day I got to be studying video. I've got to get my early work in. You know, it was easier when I was locked in. I didn't have to do as much work. But but that's very rare at the big league level to be locked in all the time. So you're constantly tweaking, constantly studying the nuances of offense. So that's a full-time job. And I got to play defense, too. Otani, not so much. He just got to hit. But to juggle that, I couldn't imagine. What would you do as a manager and I guess the main thing is we just can't lose him to an eight. We got to keep him on the field. I don't know if there is a right answer. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, that's that's you know, a question, Booney. I've been asked a number of times. I think for the first time in his career for Shohei Otani, he's had the, the real good communication going on with his manager, Joe Madden, and that's exactly what they've been talking about every day. Before in the past, his regimen was, hey, he's going to hit you know, two days a week, have his bullpen session, day off, pitch, day off. If he feels good that following day, we'll hit him again. But uh, now, and that was all set in stone by, you know, Billy Epler and, and the whole crew. And whether right or wrong, uh, it was still pretty amazing what he did in 2018 when he won Rookie of the Year. But this season with, our, with the new general manager, Perry Manassian, they, they got together right away and said, hey, listen, we're going to leave it up to you, Shohei Otani, and, and, and what you want to do. And for him, it, you know, it's, I mean, he has nine home runs, which is tied for the American League lead in home runs. He's got six stolen bases. I think he has 19 extra base hits. He's thrown 101 miles an hour. His split finger fastball, Booney, so far this year he's thrown 19, you know, at bats to finish off at a bat. They're 0 for 19 versus splitter with 18 strikeouts. It's the most unhittable pitch now in baseball to go along with 101 miles an hour. And yes, he hits the ball 450 feet. I mean, it's, it's insane what he's doing. I don't know how he's doing this because he played last night DH. He almost hit three home runs. They were all caught the warning track the other way. Now he's on the mound today, and he probably will be in the lineup as well, hitting number two. And now in National League, hey, pitchers always hit, but they're hitting number nine. He's hitting number two, and he's stealing bases. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's hitting the rockets, and he's throwing the ball. I don't know how you do that. I mean, I, I, we all did it in high school. But to, to be able to do it the next day, that's the thing we always thought that he would not play the next day after he pitched because when you throw and pitch, there's a lot of parts of your body that are really, really sore that are different for an everyday hitter swinging the bat because your ribs hurt, your, your, your lower body hurts, your, your buttocks hurts from driving towards the plate, your knee, your ankle, all that from pitching. And then you got to try to deal with somebody on the mound that next day that might be throwing 100 miles an hour at you. So it's... I think because he, he got in great shape, he went up the drive line up in Washington, Seattle area, not only for the pitching aspect, because he's doing a lot of stuff with those weighted balls and everything like that, which I think is really a, a great thing for, for pitchers, but he also did so working on hitting. And this year, he's not moving his feet. Remember, he, his back foot was moving all over. You know, if you move your feet a lot as a hitter, you have no chance, because there's a lot of things that can go wrong mechanically with your swing. So he's staying still in there. He's staying confident. Uh, you know, Dude, it was a long answer for you there, but to say what, 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 what would I do, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it up to him. He's going to let me know, and I think he's honest. If he needs a day off, he'll take it. But from a pure baseball fan aspect, there's nothing like him ever. So I want him out there as much as possible because, uh, you know, he's like having Mick Jagger in your locker room or on the field. You know, he's a member of the Rolling Stones. It, it's it's incredible just the following he has. And can you imagine the weight of the, you know, he carries every day from all over Japan. Cause we do interviews every day from, you know, media members from Japan. I mean, he's, he's a God over there yet. He's carrying that over to here. And part of his motivation this year was he felt he let everyone down, both baseball fans in America and base, baseball fans over in Japan. So that was his motivating factor. He's having a blast and he's showing more emotion this year, Booney, than I've ever seen him before. When he gets a big hit or even a big strikeout, he's fist pumping. You know, he's even had a bat flip. Not as good as yours, by the way. There's no much depth <laughs> bat flip, but that's another story. But uh, he, he's enjoying himself and doing all these things that you just want to see him 
have fun doing. Yeah, and it's when you mentioned the 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 pressure, and, and I know that's the culture. And I and I played with uh, Ichiro for a few years, and it's so important. There is so much pressure on those guys coming over to do well and represent uh, as a major league baseball player. Uh, I've I've seen it firsthand, and I know that they deal with a different level. Not only are they dealing with, you know, just being a major league player, but representing their country and and how important the culture of baseball is over there. You mentioned the split finger fastball. As offensive players, we're we're kind of we're kind of channeled, and and if it's something that everybody's throwing, you know, fastball. Okay, usually, you know, your fastball is ninety three, ninety four. Your your breaker ball is probably eighty four. Your curveball is probably seventy five. For an offensive player, that's easy for us. You know, I I remember uh, uh, I I had Norm Charlton on the podcast. He was known at in his day for having that split finger. Well, that was something that we didn't see much of from the left side. Steve fin- or uh, Chuck Finley had a split. Facero, I think, had a split. But other than those three, the left-handed split didn't exist. When you're throwing 100 miles an hour, I, I think today's game, the split isn't as prevalent as a pitch as it was when you pitched. But all of a sudden, Otani coming up with that split and throwing 100 it is an unhittable pitch. I think you're seeing that in New York right now with Chapman. He experimented this this winter with the split finger. Now he gets a guy in the hole, and he's able to to throw that split out of that same arm location. It's unhittable as an offensive player. So what a weapon to have. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated just watching it on a daily basis. I turn on the TV, he's hitting one over the backstop in center field, and he's out there dealing on the mound. It's pretty cool. I just hope he stays healthy. I think he's great for the game. I mean, could you imagine being him if he could keep this up? Come uh Come free agent time. Oh, what do you pay a guy like that? No. I, I want a hundred million. <laughs> yeah, it's always thinking about a hundred million per year because you're doing what you're doing, swinging the bat and on the mound. I mean, he's an ace on the mound, and it, I, I think if you had, a, you know, if you're on a staff like say the Dodgers have, and and then Shohei Otani's part of your staff, then maybe you're you're more apt to give him more days in between right. starts, but because he could be your potential ace, you have he's got to be part of that conversation as well, but. Well, you know, everyone asks, what do you think? To be a position player, to be a pitcher? I just say, you know what? I'm just going to sit back and enjoy them doing both because it's incredibly remarkable. I look at, you know, I love the history of the game. and I look at what Babe Ruth did. I mean, he was, he had the record, I think, for years as far as career ERA in the postseason. Here's a guy that had 714 home runs in an era where the baseball was like hitting a puffball and the bats were completely different. And that one year he had 60 home runs. There was teams that didn't even combine to hit 60 home runs. So, he was absolutely insanely good, but Shohei Otani's doing stuff now that, you know, even when people like Mike Trout don't even have, can't even describe it, that means you know how amazing what, what Shohei Otani's doing right now. And, and the big thing was like, it, somebody asked Trouty the other day, can Shohei, is there anything Shohei can't do? And he's like, he's scratching his head. He goes, you know, I thought maybe. Yeah, he does, you know, he doesn't speak English well, but he does. Believe me, he does. And they go, you know what? I don't, I, I don't know of anything he doesn't do great. That, that's, that's, that's the best player in the game, Mike Trout, described in Shohei Otani. So I just think we just sit back and enjoy what he's doing right now. We don't know how long it's going to last. Could be, you know, a, a couple of years. It could be five years, ten years. Who knows? But it's, it's something that no, no player I think can say and do the things he's doing right now on a combination between pitching and hitting and running, like, like he's doing right now. 
All right. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of fun and uh, I really appreciate you doing it. We got to a lot of topics. I think a lot of people will be interested and, and I'll continue to watch. You got, you got a, a new buddy in town in Vascursion. We got to get him on the podcast one day. Uh, tell him I said well, hello. He'll do that for sure. I will definitely do that with you. I'll tell him and he'll do it in a second with you because we were uh, we're always there talking about former guys and we were your name came up, so I'm sure he'd love to do it. All right, Gooby, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Like we do at the end of every uh, Boone podcast is we have the voice of the show, Dan Levy, come back to ask a question from the fans. Dan, take it away. All right, Mark, this question comes from Joe in Texas, and he wants to know this simple question. If you had to choose Bo versus Trout and why? Oh man, uh, geez, that's that's a tough one. Because uh, I know Bo would kill me if I didn't say his name. So you know, I'll probably lean up. But Trouty definitely because he's he's got the Bo Jackson wow factor, and he's the most phenomenal baseball player I've ever seen. So I'm gonna go with Trouty. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it, man. Booney, you guys are uh, you guys are awesome. Thanks. Mailbag. All right, Boone. Time to dig into that mailbag. Shall we roll? Dig away, Dan. All right. All right, Boone. This one comes from Joe in Texas, the same one we asked Mark. It's the same question for you. Bo versus Trout, and why? For me, as unbelievable as Bo was as a figure, or football player, baseball player, it's not even close. Uh, from just strictly a baseball aspect, Trout's one of the best players in the history of the game. Uh, who knows what Bo could have done? Uh, you know, if he, if he wouldn't have gotten injured, if he could have stayed injury free, but strictly from a baseball perspective, uh, it's not even close trout by far. Okay. Let's dig on back into the old mailbag. All right, Brett, this one comes from Josh in Florida and he wants to know, Brett, who has the best outfield arm of all time? Ooh, that's a tough one. You know, I, I got to go into my childhood and uh guy that we're going to have coming up on the podcast is definitely in the conversation. And that is uh Dave Parker. What a cannon. Uh, I played against a lot of guys, a lot of great arms. Uh, Raul Mondesi uh, with the Dodgers had a great arm. Uh There's been so many. It's, it's tough to, if I had to pick one, it's going to be, and I can't remember his first name. Guillen, he played for the Pirates in the 90s. Right fielder. Best arm I've ever seen. What about Bo? Didn't see Bo up close and personal. Never played against him. Uh, I'm sure Bo's in the conversation on pure arm strength, without a doubt. See, there's several different there's several different ways to answer the question. Sheer arm strength, who can throw a, a, a ball the, the hardest, the farthest, is one thing. But I'm talking catch, throw, uh, fundamentally sound. Uh, there's a lot of, like, for instance, one of two of the best catch, throw guys I've ever seen are Jay Buhner and Ichiro Suzuki. The fundamentals were flawless. But as far as overall arm strength, uh, Guillen is the best I've ever seen. Like I mentioned, Vladimir, uh, Mondesi, um, 
So it, it, it's it's a you know Bo's got to be in the conversation for just pure arm strength. Uh, for that matter, I can put Griffey in the mix as a young Griffey. It doesn't mean he was the most accurate, but as far as pure arm strength, he's got to be in that conversation. There's so many to choose from. I'm going to go with Guillen. All right. There's your answer. There you have it. And that is your podcast. We want to thank everybody who went ahead and sent questions in to at the moon 29 on Twitter. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. That's where you can follow him and connect with Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director and producer of the moon podcast. Executive producer of the moon podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content all gets broken up by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.